This is the first episode of the Burnt Podcast. My name is Brandon Lawrence. I'm an emergency medicine doc in Phoenix, Arizona. Hi, guys. I'm uh, Steve Sample. I'm an emergency medicine doc in Jasper, Indiana. So one of the overarching themes, I think, of 2020, uh, and, and most everyone in some fashion can identify with, is burnout. And this is something that I think was most previously used uh, in mass in our profession as emergency medicine docs, because we all feel it at some point in our career, because we just kind of see the dregs of society frequently and our jobs are just kind of go, go, go at almost all times of the night and day. Um, I've personally felt this burnout a number of times over the years, but COVID has made this like exponentially worse. I mean, is the same for you? Yeah, same for me. Yes, absolutely same for me. Um, I kind of uh, function in a near constant state of burnout. Um, and it's always various reasons, uh, but uh, modern medicine has certainly put the pressures uh, on the docks, and when we stopped being, when we stopped being um, physicians and became cogs in sort of an industrial wheel uh, that just you know pressures you to see more patients and to do more with less and, and with less trained staff on your side, um, I think that overwhelming sense of frustration manifests itself in burnout. You know, you can also call 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 it depression. Ah, oh, shit, Brandon. <laughs> My dog started barking. I have to go elsewhere. Hang on. Yeah, so burnout, you know, it's a name, um, you can call it depression, you can call it frustration. Um, it, it, it looks like a lot of things to a lot of people, but it, I think overwhelmingly it's that feeling that I can't do this anymore. Uh, but then also feeling trapped because you have developed a certain skill set that is only useful in that place. Um, and so I think a lot of docs in general, a lot of humans uh, are just feeling frustrated and burnt. I, uh, that's what I've always said. Christy. As far as an ER doc is concerned, you probably have like the most interesting timeline. Because uh, when I finished residency in 2015, like we already were replaceable cogs. Like we weren't looked at as people anymore. Every every ER practice had already been bought up by larger businesses that then governed how we had to practice and how many patients we had to see per hour. We had to cut hours and all, all this sort of stuff. So, but I think you can correct me if I'm wrong, but when you started, it was probably still kind of the tail end of democratic groups being widespread where we kind of got. To yeah, I, I think that's true, though. I, I got to miss it just like you. I missed most of that as well, uh, because I started my early career in the military. Um, so I was <laughs> you can't be more of a cog in the wheel than as a military physician. Um, however, you know, the patient, the patient population is different. The administrative population is different. So there is plenty of bullshit in the military as well that causes burnout. Um, so I kind of, I rolled into private practice right at the time, just about the time you did back in 2013, I came out into the community, uh, when I left active duty full-time. So I've never really known much different anyway. I've heard stories from the grandfathers of medicine and it sounded glorious, uh, you know, uh, but, uh, but I think our, our tracking community medicine is probably fairly similar timeline. Right. So for listeners that aren't involved in emergency medicine, uh, emergency medicine has gotten to the point where it needs to be at least some sort of a break even or money maker for hospitals. Um, and so we're expected to do X amount of productivity with Y amount of resources and hours. So it's, it's going in opposite directions and it makes things very difficult and, and, and not a particularly pleasant place to work at times, particularly in, in the advent of COVID. Absolutely. And even before COVID, you know, um, the best part about medicine is the doctor-patient relationship that you develop in an emergency medicine. We get really good at kind of getting to the nuts and bolts of that relationship without a prior history. Um, but being allowed to spend the time um, with a patient, it, it entails some sort of cost. So you, you've really got two decisions. You can practice medicine the way you think it ought to be practiced, which in, includes a lot of teaching and a lot of time at the bedside or you can stay caught up on your charting and your administrative duties, but you cannot really do both in most situations. You've got to pick. So I'm at work, 
uh, or at home charting, usually a couple of hours after every shift, because thus far I have chosen to continue to practice medicine the way I want. Um, but it definitely entails a cost. Yeah. So I think everyone can identify with frustrations at work, kind of being out of their control and that feeling of burnout probably translates to them. And then is now magnified as well in 2020 in the early part of 2021, you know, whether it's not being able to see loved ones or adhering to lockdown policies or the riots, the political infighting, Trump's tiny Twitter fingers, RIP. <laughs> um, you know, everyone's felt at least some form of this in, in um, the last 14 months or so. That's right. I mean, you know, and, and, and I think it's fed itself. So I think we're in the middle of a just global burnout. Uh, you know, I don't think it's unique to ER docs or any other docs. Uh, everybody has taken a hit this year, whether emotionally, financially, um, or family stability-wise, or, or a combination of the three, um, for sure. So, so I think it's 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 important. I think to try to reach out and and see see what was good about that. And I think that's a cool thing about this podcast because we are all fried. I'm a cynical. Um, sarcastic asshole uh, most of the time and and I have spent a year saying this year sucks this year sucks and, and, and certainly it has uh, but then I was kind of I was kind of forced to reflect on um, has anything been good and it turns out really for my family 2020 has been pretty awesome you know there was there was fear at work and there's pressures at work and, and the uncertainty of COVID um, but my kids, though they didn't like it, they got sent home from college uh, several months early at the beginning of the year, um, and I got to spend months with them that were really not on the schedule. We were not supposed to be uh, with them there during those times. My oldest just moved across the country to San Francisco, and it was going to be literally a quick bye, guys, you know, in at the end of May, beginning of June, and we actually kept her through until December, so we got to build a lot of time there um, that we didn't. You know, and then, of course, you and I met probably because um, I've been sort of one of those talking bubbleheads on on uh, MSNBC and CNN and stuff. And that happened in 2020, which certainly fed my my dead performer's ego. You know, I, I always wanted to be a, a musician and this was a way for me to to kind of put my face out there. Um, so 2020 all in all has not been terrible for us. I haven't lost a dime in salary. You know, uh, I, I continue to have a, a nice house and an intact family. Um, I know where my next meal is coming from. So I'm trying to reframe 2020 and really reframe the last 15 years of my cynical life, <laughs> I think, you know. I think that's what's going to be really fun about listening to all these different people from different walks of life stories of, of 2020. We have, you know, the wife of a, a doctor who perform CPR on the dock. We've got another doc who's having a miracle baby. We've got a man in um, somewhere in Africa. I can't remember where he said he's from that made 3,500 masks for his village. We've got all sorts of people from all different walks of life that we're going to have on. That's going to be pretty interesting to kind of put our burnout, quote unquote, in perspective, I think. And it's going to be really important, I think, for everybody, because everyone's dealing with it in different ways and saying like, oh man, that person went through this and was still able to do that not to make you feel bad about your situation, but to be able to show you like the things that are possible. Right. Yeah. I think that, uh, I think that, I, I think that we will learn more from our guests than I have to offer them uh, as far as a frame of reference, uh, you know, a mind space uh, and stuff. So I, that's one of my internal struggles that I fight with. So I'm looking forward to hearing from people who have had really cool things happen to them this year or, or, or last year, uh, or done something with the misery uh, that has been positive. Yeah, and that's uh, one thing that I try to do when gathering some of these stories is not necessarily just getting the, the tragic stories or just the miserable stories, but like you said, the ones that maybe went through this tragedy or misery, but we're, we're able to do something with it and not... Mm -hmm you know, just let, you know, it's okay if you have, you know, a depressive episode and have to succumb to it and need the help. And like, that's totally okay. But I, I want to kind of emphasize for everybody that there's, there's avenues that you can use this negative energy, harness it for good, harness it for good and, and make something of it. I think it's really novel thing that some of the people have done on that, that I've, I've heard from. Yeah. So uh, I guess without further ado, 
one of our colleagues that is pretty active on social media um, had a pretty tragic event. Uh, what month was that? March? March, I think. Yeah, it was her. It was right around Mother's Day, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was Mother's Day 2020. He suffered a cardiac arrest. He's in his 30s. And we are going to be chatting with his wife here shortly about her story and how she kept him alive. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a great story. Um, I know um, Dr. Glaucom Flecken, as he goes by on Twitter, he's, he's amassed a pretty good following and for good reasons. He's sharp and he's funny. Um, and he communicates medical information very well. Um, and he died in his sleep. Um, and so when I know my daughter follows him on Twitter as well, and when she found out we were interviewing uh, Lady G, uh, that she was pretty stoked. She was like, oh, are you going to get to meet Dr. G as well? And I'm like, no, this really isn't his story. Yeah. You know, this is her, this is her story. Uh, because, yeah, he slept through the whole thing, right? He woke up two days later. So uh, so uh, I, I know a lot of people have followed this peripherally on social media or they've, they've kind of get invested, but um, I, I was super stoked to, to get to meet her in person or virtually in person uh, and get to hear what it was like from her side. Yeah. Interesting story coming right up. All right. So today we are joined by Lady G. She's got a really interesting and courageous story. So go ahead and introduce yourself. All right, I'm uh, Lady Glockenflecken, at least on Twitter. Um, I have the dubious honor of being married to Dr. Glockenflecken, who has made a career both as an ophthalmologist and uh, making a fool of himself publicly. So that's fun. Um, yeah, so I'm yeah, here, we, I guess. Yeah, sorry. sorry about that. Yeah, we appreciate we appreciate him. Actually, I've got a 20-year-old daughter who is pre-medical. Uh, she follows your husband on TikTok. Uh, so yeah, yeah. And he's I think great. humor, humor in medicine is so needed. So just his little niche that yeah. he's carved out is perfect. Yeah. He's, you know, a, but I was... he's got a neat little, um, you know, intersection of medicine and humor and then some education too. So I guess he's uniquely suited for that one very specific internet niche. So he nailed it. yeah, he, he does really well though. You do too, because I found you, I follow you on Twitter as well and you don't do a, a bad job either. Oh, um, you know, I've always, I've always thought myself to be funny, but it's whenever I see your husband on Twitter, I'm always like, shit, I should have said that. I like, that's exactly the way I think, but he gets it out there and he does it in a way uh, that cracks me up. So, yeah. uh, but then uh, I found you and then I found your story and your story is amazing. You all have been through some shit in 2020. Yes. yes. I mean, yes. the world has been through some shit in 2020, but you guys have really have really uh, went through it. And for a while, I guess your world got really small. Uh, you know, we've been looking without, but your world got really tight and close. Why don't you tell us, tell us a little bit about your story. Tell us what happened uh, to Doc G. Yeah, so um, thankfully our 2020 story doesn't involve COVID at least. Um, so it was right after Mother's Day weekend. Um, we'd had a really nice Mother's Day that Sunday and completely normal day, everything, you know, normal, healthy, everyone. Um, we went to bed that night and then at 4.45 in the morning, I woke up to him making some really um, strange sounds. Uh, they were pretty loud, so they woke me up, um, and I have that mama hearing that I'm always sort of listening around the house anyway, so um, I think that helped um, in, in picking up on that waking up, but I'm not a healthcare worker. I'm not in the medical field at all, so I didn't, I didn't have any context for what that sound might be. Um, to me, it sounded a little bit like snoring, except really, really exaggerated, very loud, very... Um, intense, just sort of, there was some gasping involved that isn't normally in the, in snoring. Um, so that was enough to get my attention and, and really kind of alert me that something was, was weird. So I tried to wake him up, of course. Uh, well, at first, I mean, I was pretty groggy and I just sort of tried to push his head over a little bit, like people do when they're married for a long time. It was, you know, quit snoring. Um, and he <laughs> yeah, didn't, right he didn't respond to that in the way that he normally does. He didn't roll over. He didn't show, I mean, his body was almost, almost a little bit stiff, you know, um, it didn't, it, his head didn't respond to my push very much. 
um, so that was alarming too. So um, then I got a little more intense in my efforts to wake him up. I started kind of pushing on him. Um, he didn't respond at all to that, which really freaked me out. So then I started yelling his name, trying to get him to wake up. Um, and he didn't. Um, what I didn't know at the time was that that sound, of course, was um, agonal breathing. Um, but again, had no idea. I'd never heard of that. Didn't know what it was. I just knew something was really, really wrong and he wasn't responding and he was unconscious. Um, and so I, I didn't know if he could hear me or not. Um, but just in case I told him I'm calling 911, um, because if he could, I didn't want him to be worried. Um, so I did, I called 911. Um, at this point, because it was it sounded really respiratory, right? It was all of this respiratory action that was happening. And being May 2020, right in the first few months of the COVID pandemic, of course, my first thoughts went to COVID. And I thought, you know, this, this sounds like he's having trouble breathing or something. Um, but I didn't know. And, and so I was calling 911. And as I was calling, I was putting my head on his chest. Um, something in me it's, I mean, I was doing that and I registered that there was no heartbeat, there was no breathing, I didn't feel his chest moving, I couldn't hear anything, but, but it like it didn't register that there was no heartbeat and there was no breathing, right? It just, it just, logically I knew that that's what was happening and that's a problem, but I don't think emotionally I, I really registered that. Okay, for an unconscious patient, ma'am, go ahead. Hi, because we know that's that's the end like right at the end yeah. you know right before it all quits that's what the body's doing right, right. you're you're all brainstem at that point your cerebral yeah. cortex is closed down and this is just reflex yep right? Right. Yeah. so you're so you see your husband in this situation what i don't know if you can even go back to that because it's probably a state of shock but did you remember at all like the thoughts that were going on in your head oh yeah uh lots of things all at once um at first, I was just trying to figure out, you know, how to get help, what to do. Um, it's just me and him and our two kids um, that are five and eight, and it was, you know, 4.45 in the morning, so, so they were asleep uh, in the next room. Um, so at first, I was just trying to figure out what, what's happening, <laughs> and then how can we get some help? Um, and then as the, the 911 operator um, you know, she asked some questions. Is he breathing? Is he just all these things? Um, and he wasn't. She's the one that told me that I needed to start chest compressions, um, which, you know, we have the 911 recording. We've shared that um, a few times here and there. And you could hear in my voice, and I remember feeling this way. Um, what? <laughs> I thought he's having some breathing issue. What, what, what do you mean his heart? You know, it just right. never occurred to me. That this would be a heart issue or or a cardiac arrest, which is what. Well, no, and he's what? He's thirty-two or three he's years old. I mean, how? Or when it happened? Or, yeah, mm -hmm. and can. Wow. It's so funny. I, 
I'm usually saying he's 34 and completely healthy, you know, except for those two times he had cancer. So, I mean, <laughs> yes, yeah, he, was, right. he was healthy. Um, but yeah, he's got this weird medical history. He's, he's had That's bizarre. separate bouts of cancer, right? Not a recurrence of the first time, just two individual instances of cancer that thankfully- Non-endocrine um, non or? It was testicular both times. Yeah, so- <sighs> So oh, it, he, so I, I knew he had had testicular. I didn't know if you, I didn't want to just bring out Dr. G's balls unless you did. But I mean, yeah, I don't think he <laughs> I, had I, any boundaries. I, before, I, did, so. I did not know that it was two separate. I, I did not know that it was not the same cancer. That that is that he should buy lottery tickets every day. I know, except yeah. he's got like right. reverse. Well, I don't know. It's bad. <laughs> bad luck mixed with nine lives. I guess. Holy shit! Know. Yeah, that's wild. No, I didn't yeah. know that. That's unusual. Yeah, so he had had that the first one in medical school a year after our first baby was born, the second one in residency a year after our second baby was born. So thankfully, I said, even if we could, we're not having any more babies because you're <laughs> <No. there." laughs> So yeah, instead of cancer, it was a cardiac arrest the third time, despite having no more babies. Um, but yeah, so as she was telling me to, to do this chest compressions, I was, that's, I think, when the shock really set in. Um, because that, then I was like, I have no, what his heart, what, like, what, how did that even happen? He's never had heart problems. He's, you know, never, no high cholesterol, no high blood pressure, nothing, nothing at all ever to indicate that his heart might be a problem for him. Um, if you can't move him, then we're just going to go ahead and Keep him on the bed, okay? Put the heel of your hand on the center of his chest, right between uh -huh. his nipples, and put your other okay. hand on top of that hand, and you're going to push down hard and fast, at least two inches deep, allowing his okay. chest okay. to rise. Okay. Is that him? Yes. Okay. 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 Okay doing them. I had had a CPR class once um, way back in college, probably like 15 years ago um, for an after-school job that I had with kids. Um, and, and that's it. But, it, you know, it had been a while, but thankfully it's not too complicated of a, a process. So I did have some knowledge of what to do. Um, and I had that Bee Gees song in my mind. He remembered. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's an effective teaching tool that stuck with me all the years later. Um, and of course, the 911 dispatcher was was counting for me to help me keep pace sure. as well. But during that, I did that for 10 minutes. That, that had to be the longest 10 minutes of your life or the shortest. Oh, yeah. It both. Was, yeah. both. <laughs> Simultaneously, I think. Um, yeah. Physically, I was getting obviously very tired. Um, he's Exhausting. a big guy. He's six yeah. four. Um, I am not. I am five three, and um, have some spinal issues. You know, I'm not particularly <laughs> strong or anything. So um, I couldn't get him off the bed um, because I was worried about. First of all, he's so much bigger than me, and then secondly, I was worried about. You know, he was he was not. His body would not be helping me at all, obviously. And there was a nightstand right by his head, and I didn't want to. I couldn't find a way in our space to get him on the floor without hitting his head on the nightstand. So we just had to do it on the mattress. Um, and I was doing that for 10 minutes and I remember thinking all sorts of things. Um, I, turns out I keep a pretty cool head in an emergency and I'm very practical and logistical minded. So I was thinking primarily of the kids. Once I was to the point of doing chest compressions, I was thinking, what am I going to tell my kids if their dad dies right now? You know, they're going to wake up in the morning and not have a dad just all of a sudden, right. you know, how am I going to break that news to them? How, how are we going to move on with our lives without him? Um, you know, thank God they didn't walk in during that. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I'm glad that it happened early enough that, um, you know, at that point, I think they were still asleep. Seven, eight, nine, ten. I have um, I have two kids. Okay. Asleep in the next room. Okay. I don't want to scare them. 
Okay, how old are they? Eight and five. Okay. Okay, keep going, okay? I'll let them know that they have them asleep. Um. Sure, and then while you're doing that, and you're bouncing on your your little your little self is pressing really hard on a bed yeah. and bouncing around and getting exhausted. At that time, uh, from what I remember, you were also directing the EMS crews to you and to your bedroom and yeah. by your kids, right? Right. I was thinking of all the logistics. I was thinking, um, okay, how are they going to get in? Which doors are unlocked? Um, you know, what? How could they get here? Um, I told them which corner of the house we were in. I think it's the northwest corner that our bedroom is in. And um, I knew the front door was locked with a deadbolt, um, but I knew, you know, the back door that leads out into the garage. You can enter the code to the garage and then the back door. Sometimes we left unlocked, sometimes we locked it. I couldn't remember if we had locked it that night, not, but it seemed like the best bet. So I went ahead and just gave them the garage code. Um, Turned out we had locked it, unfortunately. And so they had to uh, kick the door down and in order to get in. Um, so the fire station is really not that far from our house. And so I, I kept thinking, surely they'll be here in like, you know, five minutes or something. It won't take them long to get here. Um, and that was, that was one thing I kept thinking is just, when are they here? Are they here yet? Are they here yet? I think I kept asking the 911 dispatcher, you know, how much longer? Because I was getting so physically exhausted that I started to worry about, I'm not going to be able to be effective at this anymore, you know, at a certain point. Um, yeah, that, that dissipates very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Usually in right. codes, we switch off every two minutes. So the fact that you as a very small person was doing it on a much larger person for 10 minutes is something. Yeah, and we'll yeah. see we'll see people come in in the back of an ambulance with just one paramedic in the back doing CPR just for that ambulance ride, and they come in sometimes looking sicker than the patient. They're covered in sweat, you <laughs> right. know, because you know if you're if you're doing it correctly, it's yeah. work. Right. Yeah. Clearly, it was clearly you it's your it. entire yeah. body that you're putting into it. Yeah. So the you know we met with the paramedics and stuff after the fact, um, just to kind of have some closure on the situation. And they were telling us uh, one of them said when they walked in that my feet were coming off the floor, like I was just, you know, and that was that was at minute ten or whatever. So I was really really trying. I was thinking of my kids, and I just did not want to have to tell them that they didn't have a dad anymore. That was really the main driving. Of course, I didn't want them to die either. But you know, I think any right. parent knows that feeling of cannot let yeah. this happen to my kids. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, one, two, three. They're coming, okay? They're coming as fast as they can. They're there. Just keep going. I know you are. You're doing a really good job, Kristen. I've given them the code to come in the garage. Yeah, I think every parent, you know, good parent, always thinks of kids before themselves as so I mean that doesn't surprise me that's the very first thought in your head is the children did they wake up at all throughout that whole ordeal with the door getting kicked in and so right so um I had the door the window open it was you know a kind of a warm night so we'd had the window open and in the bedroom and I could hear when the firefighters got there um I say firefighters because they were the ones that kicked it in right first responders uh, right yeah so I heard when they got there and they were shouting and I couldn't hear what they were saying, but I could hear them shouting. And so then I was shouting, hopefully, you know, to try to say here, we're over here, come this way, you know? Um, so I'm sure between all the shouting and the door getting kicked in and the flashing lights at some point, I don't know which part of that woke them up, but they did wake up. Um, thankfully they stayed in their bed. Um, they did. Amazing. Lots of good sleep training paid off. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, and one of the paramedics um, ended up coming up the stairs and, and shutting. I told the 911 dispatcher which room they were in because I didn't want them to have to see anything or get scared. Um, and one of them came up the stairs and they were in their full hazmat suits, you know, mm, helmets. Early COVID, yeah. Oh, they came COVID, they came COVID style. I forgot. Right. So the five-year-old yeah. probably look like uh, probably look like the scene from ET. Yeah, exactly. exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah, right. the bubble outside the house. Right. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, so he um, did shut their door, but he he described in our meeting with them later, he described that he met, he made eye contact with my older daughter, who's eight, 
um, she didn't say anything, but they just made eye contact and he shut the door. And he said that just really haunted him for, you know, he was really worried about how the kids were doing, you know? So thankfully we were able to, to tell him that they're all doing great, but that was a really powerful moment for them. Um, but yeah, they stayed in their room. Um, he, they came in and grabbed him. They put something under him on the bed. They put the board. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was like a sheet with handles or something. (laughs) Yeah. Um, They probably put something flat to like, there's like a transporter and it it gives them a hard surface. You're actually, you must have, you have no idea how superhuman your strength was. Beds are not made for CPR. Nope. Mm -hmm. You know, to keep his brain alive. Uh, for all those minutes, you you were pushing harder than you think you were because it is working against you. Uh, so we usually put something hard and something we can move them with. And so yep. they got him over there and they and finally you stood you stood back, I guess, and said, Help. yeah, they had to tell me. I remember they had to tell me twice. The the guy came in and told me I could stop. And I was like, no. <laughs> then he had to finally. I got know, this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's sunk in. But, oh, yeah. These are the people that can help. So, um, you know, it's just you like you said, you're kind of you're just in survival mode in those cases and you've got all this adrenaline and thank goodness you do. I think that's the only way I was able to do any of that was the power of adrenaline, but. Okay, they're coming. Yeah, come on, come on. One, two, three. Yeah. You're upstairs? Yeah, I'm in the, uh, I think the north side of the house, the side of the back door that they're coming into, second floor. Okay, one, two, three. Come on. Keep going until they tell you to move over, okay? Don't stop until they tell you to. Okay, keep going, Kristen. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. One, two. Okay, keep going until they tell you to move over, okay? I want you to keep going. Okay. Okay. You can do this, okay? Keep going until they ha- they take over. So they took him, they, they got him off the bed. Um, they walked him down our hallway and we have a kind of a staircase that curves. They had a contorted body. I mean, he's tall, so it was hard to get him through there. Um, and as I was doing CPR, I remember that he was turning blue and purple. You know, I have that image of his face in my mind. Um, and then yep. as they were taking him down the hallway and they they laid him down they took him downstairs because we have a hard floor down there um, and more light and more space and so they needed a spot to work so they brought him down to the living room put him on the floor and when they did that I saw that now he was gray and of course that obviously really freaked me out but I mean the whole time it's like you're in this sort of dissociative state or something like logically I saw that and it registered and it's something that I remember um emotionally I just I don't think I was ready to accept that and so it just was like uh, nope not happening yep. <laughs> you know? um but I saw that and and then they started to get out the paddles and I knew what was going to come next so I um I didn't want to see that and mm-hmm. I didn't want you know I just didn't want to have that image in my head I felt bad feeling like I didn't want to stay there with him, but I just did not want to remember. If that was the end, I didn't want to remember it that way. Um, And I also was concerned that, well, if I become emotional, you know, I'm keeping it together so far, but if I become emotional, then I'm a distraction from the care that he needs. So, um, so I decided to go up, go upstairs. um, And as I was walking up the stairs, I heard, well, first they had, they had attached all sorts of stuff to him and I heard the flat line sound watched enough episodes of er <laughs> no that's supposed to be beeping <laughs> and hopefully yeah 
Yeah. So, so that, that sucked. Um, I went up the stairs and heard them give him the first shock and I heard his body just slam back down onto the hardwood floor. Um, so I just kept going. I went and I checked to make sure that the kid's bedroom was still, you know, the door was still shut. Um, thankfully it was. And then I just started going into, um, just logistics mode. You know, I think in that moment, that's, that's what felt like I can't do any, I you feel helpless. That was so you're super type, you're type A, right? Oh you're yeah. Type a. You're, a, you're, a you're a control person. I don't know you, but I feel like I, I hear you and I'm hearing just type A, like in control. Oh uh, yeah. That probably, yep. that personality probably served you and Doc G extremely well during that thing you know the right. more history you know histrionic people like me i'm all over the damn place uh and stuff it's not helpful in those scenes so your personality was right. was suited for this yeah yeah i don't know i mean i'd never been in a real emergency situation like this before um to me it just felt like well what else would you do but call 911 and do all these things i mean it, people kept talking to me afterwards about like how you wow you were able to stay calm or what but to me it just felt like I, th there was no other choice. What else do you do? What was I going to do? Just sit there and not do anything? Yeah. Uh, some, <laughs> so, people some people run around the room and throw things yeah. around the yeah. help, help, help. They don't know what to do. Yeah. So just like a, a small a small example of that, when I was about 12, I cut my leg open really badly, just gaping wound on my leg with my dad. And whereas most people, I, I had done like, you know, those survival training and stuff. So I was holding it together. And most people would just go get a bandage. And he literally ran around the yard didn't know what to do, broke into the house because we were locked out of the house and took forever because in his mind, we we're going to the hospital and he had to find something white to wrap my leg with. So like some people literally just, they lose all <laughs> thought process. Because he had seen a bandage, because he saw yes. bandages on TV. So, right. so literally you lose all thought processes. So it like, it says yeah. something for you that you could maintain your cool and kind of get through all the steps in order to give him this fighting shot. Yeah. So I will... I will tell you briefly, my, so my wife is a stage four cancer survivor. She has uh, malignant melanoma. And in 2013, uh, we almost lost her and she got admitted to the hospital. Um, she had uh, multiple tumors in her spine and in her bones. Um, and she had a tumor erode through. And long story short, they, they didn't give her enough pain medicine. She was miserable. And then they gave her too much pain medicine. And I came into the room she had been away for like a three hour MRI, like head to toe, and she was gone and, and it was having a ton of pain. And they finally put her on a drip of pain medicine. Um, and she felt better, um, wanted to go to sleep. We left her alone. We went to uh, the waiting room and we were just waiting for one more doctor. She had seen 37,000 doctors and nurses that day. Um, and we saw one doctor that we thought might be the one. So I kind of chased him down the hallway turned out not to be him um, but I was by her room and so I thought I would peek in on her the room was dark um, and I decided I had to go give her a kiss and so I went across the way and much like you must have seen so she was not breathing at all full stop um, uh, and was gray and had that cold that cold hard skin sweaty had already sweat through her clothes so I found her in respiratory arrest she had actually been overdosed on her narcotics and they did not have her on pulse oximetry and i will oh, tell jesus. you i've so at that point in time i've been practicing medicine for 10 years and the doctor in me did not really come out the panicked holy shit husband came out in the sound i will never forget the sound that came out of me it was this kind of vomited like no help you know um and i remember just i i slammed her on her chest and and I mean, I hit her hard <laughs> and, and I jerked her up in the bed and she just sort of opened her eyes slowly and just kind of took a, a breath and, and, and all these things. And I started calling out orders while well, I had been in the hospital for like two days. I was wearing the same clothes that I had been wearing and I'm calling for oxygen and sitting her up and smacking her in the face. But, and it turns out when you, when you act like, you know, what you're doing, people were following my orders. They had no idea I was a physician. I was in Louisville. I was an hour and a half from home. Um, <laughs> but I never, but it's easy. If it was your husband for me, I would have said she needs some Narcan. So Narcan will re reverse that immediately. Never thought about Narcan. I give Narcan all the time. Never yeah. considered it for her because my brain was 
fraud. I was not a physician. I was a grieving husband. And, and Lady G, like you, I know, I, I woke up for days seeing that what she looked like yeah. gray, not breathing yeah. in my brain. It was terrifying. Yeah, yeah. Just wow. you, you don't you don't forget it ever, wow. ever, ever, ever. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So it's you did better than I did. And I was in a hospital with equipment around me. And I've you been know a, what? Maybe that's why, because you were in the hospital. Yeah. I think you kind of yeah. they're going to take care of it. For me, it was just it was me or nobody. So right. how did you that's right. So, that's right. so you you hear the first shock, you hear a flat line before it. What happens next? So I went upstairs, um, checked on the kids, make sure they were still in their room. Um, I'd, I wasn't aware that they had woken up. I learned that later. So I just assumed they were still asleep. Um, I went into our room and I just started making phone calls. And, you know, the first thing that, that went through my mind was, well, I need to call his clinic, let them know. Mm -hmm. All right. So we had some technical difficulties. Oh, no, he's I'm not frozen. Oh. We had some technical difficulties here. My internet is frozen to us. Oh my God. Can you hear me? What if I turn my video off? I, I can, we right. can hear you. All right. I can so hear I'm you at, just fine. I'm having yeah. some technical difficulties here. Uh, so we left off. For some reason, you're in the midst of your husband in this state and you decide he has to call your work prior to families. So let's hear, let's hear how that, that <laughs> conversation went with the scheduling department. Well, I just knew that that was what he would want. I mean, he gives off an air on Twitter of, you know, pretty casual, irreverent, and he is, but he also takes his, his work very seriously, and he's a very good doctor, and um, he hates being a burden to other people, and I knew that if he just didn't show up at work that day, um, and there was no explanation as to why, that that would be something, he would be mortified after the fact to know that that right. just happened. Um, so I knew him well enough to know that he would want me to do that. So I went ahead and did that. Um, I called, uh, my parents live within driving distance, um, within an hour. So I called them and asked them if they could come up, um, and be with the kids because I was hoping to be able to go with him, whatever was next. Um, well, either way, I would need my parents around to help out. Um, so I called them, they got in the car, started driving immediately. Um, I called his parents then and let them know what was going on. And um, then I called my work to let them know that I would not be there. Um, so they're still yeah. working him downstairs right now. Yeah, I, yeah. And as far as you know, he's not back. They still don't have a they still don't have a pulse back on him yet. At this right, point. I hadn't gotten any updates. Yeah, because I guess my presumption is just reading the story because I sort of, as a physician, I fill in the blanks. You know, you did the CPR, you got there, they put the paddles on, immediately found a shockable rhythm, they shocked him, they got a rhythm back, and then he woke up two days later. But there's a lot in between, yeah. I guess. Well, um, they had to shock him six times, I think. Oh, okay. cow. Yeah, and they gave him three rounds of epi, and um, I can never remember the thing that... Amiodarone. Yes, that one. Yeah, so he had, did he have, was his presenting rhythm ventricular fibrillation or VTAC? Yes. Mm -hmm. Ventricular fibrillation, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yep, yeah. so, um, yeah, so all of that was going, I think they were working on him for like 12 minutes or something downstairs after okay. 10 minutes I did of CPR, so mm -hmm. it was, it was too close, too close. That's awful. But they got him back, yeah. so. So while they're in the house, yeah, they got a, pulses it's back. It's a great story. I was following along with it and I was like, holy shit. I was like, yeah. oh my God. You yeah. know, uh, it, it's always, it's always awful. So, so he had a pulse before he got put in the ambulance. They, they successfully yeah. worked him at the scene. They yeah, did. Good. Yep. And they intubated him and got him, got him off. Um, apparently there was a, a cuff link. Uh, cuff leak, not link. Leak. <laughs> oh, cuff leak. Yeah. The balloon. Yeah. Yeah. Usually yes. it pops or something. Uh, so he had that issue in the ambulance. I think they had to redo it when they when they got him to the ER. But sure. um, you know, I was in there. I was packing a bag, <laughs> just trying to think of what he might want if he woke up at the hospital. You know, because I was thinking about from his perspective, he just went to bed one night and then he's gonna wake up in the hospital and be like, Yeah. Where am I? Uh -huh. So I was trying to put together some things that might make him more comfortable or, or whatever. But um, but unfortunately, it was, you know, it was during COVID. So um, they did let me come in 
I, so I, I went to the hospital about probably 20 minutes behind him by the time you know, I had to wait for my parents to get there and get all that sorted out. And then I went to the hospital. Um, I did get to come into the hospital um, and I asked why, because um, the paramedics had told me that I would be able to, to go in when I got there and they gave me like some information to hand to the people. Um, and I asked why, why am I allowed to come in here? Because nobody's allowed to come in here. And yeah, right. You were the exception. The, yeah, there were a few exceptions even then, right? Yep. So yep. The, the lady at the front, I don't even know who I was talking to. That's all a big blur. But whoever was yeah. behind that desk um, just said, I, I don't know, um, which I think she was doing that to be nice. I think she did. Yes. Not, um, yes. End of life right. exception. They all yes. know. That's right. So what's that? So am I on like a delay? I'm uh, sorry. Brandon, you're, uh, turn your... All right, go ahead. Oh, oh he, had, he had to stop the recording. Yeah, he stopped the recording there for a little bit. Yeah, so so it was, um, so he was there 12, so I'm just recapping because I have no idea where his, his uh, thing cut out. So we got, you know- It didn't cut out. He, yeah, so she, <laughs> we got to the hospital. We talked about okay. uh, her getting let in. It, it never really cut out. Yeah. So. So she had a, so you had an, you had an end of life exception, which you found out yeah. after the fact, you're like, yeah. why am I special? It's because they thought you had a dead husband basically. Right. right? Yeah. yeah exactly. Or maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. so they let me come in, but I didn't get to, you know, be wherever he was. Obviously he was a little busy having scans yeah. and procedures of all kinds. Um, but they put me in I don't want to say to, I am so grateful to that hospital for what they did and they, they got him back and they took great care of him. Um, I'm, I'm a little less impressed with the care they took of me. Yeah. Uh, they came in or I came in and they put me in a room. I mean, again, I understand it was COVID time. So everything, it was early on. Yeah. They were not running at their best and like we were all just doing our best. Right. I understand that. But um, they put me in a room in radiology that was lead lined walls. And so I didn't have a cell signal. So now here, yeah. here I am, a 35 year old woman whose husband <laughs> yeah. had cardiac arrest and they have isolated me. They put me in a room where I can't be around other people because of COVID and I can't use my phone because mm. the room they chose had lead lined walls. So, wow. um, so I, I, I wasn't just gonna sit there. <laughs> so, so that's I, terrible, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you paced. Yeah. I, I did. And I, you know, I had people calling me, his family members, my family members. Um, I was the sole person that had information to relay out to people. So I was trying to, you know, to give people updates as I got did them. Did you have, did you have access to a landline at least where you could make those calls from your, oh, okay. If I did, they That's didn't problem. tell me about it. No. Sure. Literally sitting alone with your thoughts after yeah. this whole tragic event <laughs> happens. Yeah. Wow. And so I would walk down the hall. If I walked down the hall, there was a door. I didn't go through the door. It was like a door into the lobby. And if I stood right by it, I could get enough signal to make some calls. So I just kind of, I went there when I needed to make a call or a text. Um, and then I went back into the room, you know? And so I was just kind of going back and forth like that. Um, and eventually they asked me to leave the hospital because I was making people nervous. Oh, Jesus. So because oh, you were, because, because you were exposed, because you were, because it was COVID and you might be infected right. and uh, stuff like that. Right. Oh, hello, little friend. Hi. <laughs> daddy. What's daddy doing? He's sitting on the couch. He, tell daddy we want a TikTok video right now. You need to make one right yeah, now. Tell daddy to make a TikTok video, okay? With you in it. Okay. <laughs> that was great. Uh, yeah. yeah. So they they kicked you out of the hospital. They did. Yeah. They asked me to leave because I wasn't sitting in that room. Um, uh, that was so COVID. You, that's that's pure pure simple fear. Which, yeah. You know, the fear of the unknown at is, that point. It is so hard because we all thought it was like you might be a zombie that could kill us at that point. You know. Yeah. Nobody really knew what the hell was going on. That part. I just felt like you know. We can do better than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, should have. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, before that point, you know, I'd gotten updates from, they did an angiogram, nothing. They did CT scans, nothing. I mean, everything was clear. There was no explanation, you know, yeah. at that point. This was the point. electricity, not the plumbing, right? Exactly. Yeah. Electricity. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, oh, and then the cardiologist at that point, uh, he told me, 
um, it would be better. I can't remember his exact words, but basically it, it just made me more afraid what he told me. He said, because we didn't know when it started that, you know, it's, it's, you have higher success rates if, if you witness the person just like go down and he starts to right. right, right, right. know how long it had been before I had started CPR that I think he was trying to help me prepare myself, but yeah. it wasn't done in a very good way. And it just made me feel like, why would you say that? You know, that like, oh, your husband has a worse chance of coming yeah. out of this. But the way that so it that, was communicated was very kind of calloused and I don't know. It, that was, is, it was, yeah, funny. that, that is going to be a, that, that is a very, that is a very difficult conversation to have because of emergency positions. That. Yeah. And, and, and we can learn from you uh, how to do it better because as emergency physicians, we have to have these conversations often while the CPR is still going. And so there's a fine, there's this line between we've got this basically grieving 35 year old woman in front of us with her freaking physician husband down the hallway. And it's like, so we want to bring you hope, but not too much hope because really, honestly, most of the people that we see like Doc G, they stay dead. Right. You know, they, they, yeah. we don't get most of them back. And so we want to bring them like, it's almost like you're trying to soften the landing uh, yeah. for them when they come. Uh, though at this point in time, you know, of course he had a pulse and he'd already had his NGO. Yeah, I just felt like it wasn't so, necessary to tell me that, you know, like yeah. afterward, mm -hmm. I would have, I would have wanted to know that as like a, wow, right, right. what are the odds, you know, but right. in that moment, I just want hope. I just yeah. want to know because he, he was back, right? Like they did, they got right. his right um heartbeat back so so i don't know whatever i'm sure it's individual to every person but i guess yep. the takeaway is just try to be well, mindful of, I, I do think though it's something that a lot of docs struggle with is, yeah. is those particular conversations with like like you said is walking that line because uh, you we don't know after that many you know however much time down you know mentally right. what's going to be there's you know the term vegetable some people use but right exactly. um yeah, and yeah it's just, what we still didn't know we knew his heartbeat was back but we had no right. idea what his future yeah. was gonna be. so it's yeah it's really difficult i think on some people they're just not comfortable with that that sort of kind of it is station yeah right and i have a lot of sympathy for it too i mean yeah I can't imagine doing the work that you guys do and having to tell people the things you have to tell them. So I, I know there's, and everybody's different. Right. And for, for us, if, if you're in this position, your preference then would be more kind of an uplifting sort of thing. Is that correct? Yeah. Or just if it's, I guess, just, is it necessary? Is it necessary to tell me that he might not survive? I'm already pretty aware of that. You okay. Know? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I got gotcha. you. Hear it from the doctor yeah. just reinforces it and makes it seem even more likely you know, during a time when I'm wanting to know what can we do, what it's still a time of possibility, right? Yeah. Yes. So it, I think that's why it was the mismatch. To me, it still felt like a time of possibility. And here was this message of don't get your hopes up, you know, which right. I, again, it, I understand it, but it just felt like I want you in this fight with me. I want to know that sure. you're, you know, not writing him off already, you know. You know, and the good news is, you know, uh, for you guys is y'all are young. You get a young, yeah. healthy, robust guy, because I will tell you, I've had this conversation a million times with the elderly folks and they don't go home. None of them go home. Right. If they do like this, I mean, because when an 80 year old heart dies, it stays dead. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah. when right. a 35 year old heart dies, it turns out the body can do some pretty wonky stuff, especially if he yeah. has an awesome wife who does awesome CPR immediately <laughs> uh, and, does, and does all the right thing and cancels clinic. Um, and stuff like that. But, that um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's awesome. But but um, but I think it's probably it's a good lesson for us because we uh, we tend to be pessimistic with our cardiac arrests. I, yeah. I think uh, so. I'm going to tell you. So when we see cardiac arrests so infrequently, the ones we typically see are going to be like a narcotics overdose yeah. where we either get them back or we don't um, because they're either already dead dead. Um, or we can just give them a little medicine and they perk up and they're already yeah, at you and they're the home. Uh, but you're thinking, we, how long? I might be fucked. Right. I mean, really, honestly, right. that's the way we would talk to each other. Right. Uh, and then when we bring well, it, just it, it to me, you. I read um, Brana Anish's book, In Stock. I read that 
It's called In Shock. Um, She's a physician who also has some very serious health complications and actually, you know, died and they were able to get her back. But but she talks a lot about the way that doctors communicate um, to patients and that, you know, she was unconscious according to what they could see, right? But she could still hear what they were saying. And so just what they're saying around her, you know, she's circling the drain, she's trying to keep us or whatever. Um, that your words really matter. And that's kind yeah. of what it felt like in that in that case. Like your words matter to the patient, to the family members. Um, yes. You know, that you want to know that those people are going to fight just as hard as you want them to. And when you start using language like, oh, he's fucked, you know, that, and obviously that's not what the doctors were saying to me. But if you start right. giving me the- Never to you, you know, but maybe to each other. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But if, but I was getting the family member version of that message, right? Uh, and that it just felt like, and I don't want to criticize this doctor because I know he did absolutely everything he was supposed to do. I don't have any complaints about the care that he delivered. It was more about how he was communicating that to me that, you know, I want to be able to feel like I'm leaving my husband with you. You better want him back just as much as I do. And you better not be writing him off just because I did CPR on a mattress. Right. Yeah, and that's one thing I always try to tell people, especially when the resuscitation is in progress, you know, because so much of so much of just the initial resuscitation is very protocolized that you don't need me in the room to do it. My nurses and medics can do CPR and I can and I will tell them, give give them epinephrine every three minutes till I say stop, you know, and then I will run down the hallway and I'll try to talk to you. And so I know the last thing I, I leave people is that I want you to know is like I will treat, you know, I'll treat Doc G like he was my brother or my father. I said, I will stop when I would want my father to stop. And I will not stop a second before then. Um, you know, uh, and I try to impress that on people. Um, but yeah, some of us aren't terribly good at it. You know, a lot of times people who choose medicine as a career, they're, some of us, um, don't communicate very well. We're science geeks, you know, we're, you know, they're not all. And and when you, when you butt up against that, you really see when personality and that's, that's really in the art of medicine because it doesn't make, it doesn't make you any more or less likely to survive, but how you experience the process and what you think about now certainly does. Right. Yeah. And that gets back to what we were talking about before, you know, what I would love to see is maybe some systemic changes and, you know, I want that physician. I don't necessarily want the physician having to come out and give me updates. I would like updates. Don't get me wrong. And I want them to be accurate and I want the person to be able to answer my questions, but I want that physician in there with my husband working on him, you know? So if the physician can't come out and talk to me, that's fine. But like have somebody there who can talk to the family members, have someone there who knows the medical side of it well enough to communicate, you know, the doctor can talk to that person and then that person can be trained in communicating with uh, family members and loved ones that are there. Yeah. Their patients. I've got to believe some of some of your some of your experience. I hope uh, was because of this early days of COVID kind of thing. Because I know for our hospital, we we immediately when we have a cardiac arrest, we call it out and we bring in pastoral care, uh, the house supervisor, so the kind of the right. chief nurse in the hospital. They come down and they sit with you until you kick them out of the room, and they will walk right. you here and there, and they they check with me and I check with them. Uh, but yeah, during COVID, it got, it, it's super weird. Yeah. It, it's probably yes, better I, now, even I though we're full. not see him at all. You know, I FaceTimed with him once he finally woke up. You know, it was just so hard. Oh, yeah, Again, nobody's blamed. That, it was just the pandemic. Yeah, but yeah Steve, so Steve I, don't, I don't think that's the norm. My hospital doesn't doesn't do a kind of above and beyond stuff like, like you're oh, talking about. Oh, is that right? So, yeah. Maybe it's and because that's, I'm that's a small town. That's the point I want. Like, that shouldn't have to be above and beyond. Like the, yeah. the family member is part. Right right of the of the team i agree yeah yeah, yeah. i, I agree with you yeah so well absolutely yeah. because if because if you know if if god forbid he didn't come back you're the one who has to deal with the fallout right you know he as far as he knows he went to sleep and probably woke up what two days later in the hospital and was like what the hell why right. does my chest hurt so bad right, <laughs> you exactly. know yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And then he doesn't even have the, you know, decency to remember it later. So. <laughs> yeah, you can hold that over him forever and ever, though. You've got all the free passes on the planet Earth. Yeah, well, that, that's a good that's a good thing to get out. It's something we should talk about. And, and certainly we're going to have primarily, um, if anybody decides to tune in, 
That's the thing, you know, if you work in an ER or you work in an ICU, if you guys, if you see family members sitting alone while you're, you're doing, you know, somebody's down the hall doing CPR on that family, make sure that you have a plan in place. And if you don't have a plan in place, grab somebody and throw them at the family member and let them have uh, that communication back and forth. Because, because I, th I think a lot of the bad experiences that come out of hospital visits in general, when people leave pissed off. Um, they could have had the best care on the planet from the smartest people on the planet, but if you didn't communicate with them effectively, they're pissed, you yeah. know, uh, and, and, they, and they have a completely different experience, you know, then of course, as doctors, we, we tend to think, well, did you die? But <laughs> no, right. you know, did you die? Then you got good care. But, but this right. stuff, especially trauma like this, this stuff, I mean, when you're 70, this night will be as, that night will be as clear to you right. and how you were treated will be as clear you know, what, what I had for breakfast two weeks ago, I don't remember, but that night when I walked in on my wife not breathing, that is a snapshot, right? That's an inflection yeah. point in my life that I will never forget. Yeah. Right. yeah, and I mean, they did a great job communicating what the care was. It's just, yeah. it's, it's that piece of just the human that, piece, right? Extra how human do I feel standing in front of you, listening to what you're telling me, and then an acknowledgement of that and a response to it. And it really doesn't take much. It doesn't take much effort or or anything to to accomplish that either. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. That was. I mean, it's a little tangential, but it. Uh, sorry. Nah, it's, it's good. It's good. I mean, that's great. So your kiddos yeah. are getting so your kiddos are getting impatient. We're gonna. Let so how? Back. Yeah. How long? Just real quick. How long? Two questions I had. How long did it take for him to wake up? Sorry. Uh, how long did it take him to wake up? Yeah. So they, they cooled his brain mm -hmm. yeah. for, I think, 24 hours. Um, right. And then once they turned all of that off, I think it was, I think within 12 hours, he yeah. was um, awesome. awake. So when he was at the, when he was in the ambulance, he was already thrashing. I mean, not. So that's a great sign. That's a great, that's great sign. A yeah. 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 Yep. He had that. So even with that, if he was already bucking the tube and trying to, you know, and they're right. having to hold him down in the truck. So I think I would have come at you with a lot more hope. From so that would I have. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would have said, hey, let's let him rest. Let's cool him off. Let's, you know, let's make sure he's metabolically okay. But right. just the fact that he could fight is, yes. is a fantastic prognosticator in right. cardiac arrest. And, yeah, there, were no, there were no, you know, results in any of the scans. Like he was totally, right. everything else was perfectly fine. And he had that fight. I just felt like you don't need to tell me that he. They give him a, they give him a diagnosis. They think it was like long QT syndrome or no idea. it's a random. No yeah. idea. So he's so, got a pacer defibrillator, I assume now, or a defibrillator. Yeah, he's got an ICD. Um, one of the, the new kind, I guess, yeah. is like just under the skin. Um, and that'll last him for like 10 years or something. And, and he, it sends data. There's a little machine that he's got mm -hmm. in the bedroom that, you know, sends data to his doctor. Right. And so if there is something um, that shows up down the road, you know, maybe we'll see it there. So far, there hasn't been um, he's done some genetic testing. We haven't gotten the results of that back, but you know, obviously for me, that's I worry about my kids. Right? For sure, yeah, because you start thinking, wait a minute, he's had two separate cancers and now a random ventricular fibrillation. Like, what the right, hell's going exactly. on? Exactly. So we, yeah. we're still waiting that's on just, that to see if maybe there's an explanation there, but otherwise, yeah, they have no idea what caused it. He hadn't. What? He had woken up at like three in the morning that night. Um, and I just like kind of registered it, but just immediately went back to sleep. You know, I heard him go into the bathroom and then just kind of like, oh, you know, one of those, like, God, I'm up in the middle of the night kind of, right. you know? And right. so, I mean, that's, he doesn't do that very often, but mm -hmm. it's within a normal thing that people do. Right. So I didn't think right. of it, but of course, in retrospect, I, I wonder, you, know, you wonder if that, if he was, he was feeling, yeah, something, feeling was, something, something wasn't yeah. right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, that's... we'll never know, but. No, yeah, last, hopefully, hopefully you never know. Hopefully you last, never know. Yeah. Last, last follow-up question. Um, you had talked about um, when the, when the first responder had come back into the house, made eye contact with your daughter or was it mm -hmm. the daughter? Yeah. Did, did you ever go back and rehash that with her to, to see kind of, you know, how she felt during that? Yeah. So um, before I left for the hospital that morning, um, by that point, my parents were there. And so my mom and I went into their bedroom and, you know, we had to, they would notice that their dad's not home. <laughs> right. right. And that's weird. Uh, so we had to give him something. 
and so we said that, you know, he, in the middle of the night, he had gotten sick and needed to go to the hospital, but you know, that they were taking care of him. And so, so they knew that he was in the hospital. Um, and then, you know, over the course of the next few days, we gave them more and more information. And now they know the whole story. Um, as we felt like they were ready to hear pieces. And, and as we felt like we were, we had something to tell them, you know, I didn't want to just say, well, I don't know, he might die. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's too much. Yeah. So we, we gave it to them as we got it. And, and um, yeah, we, we talked to her about it afterward. We, you know, especially the older one, we took her on a couple walks and, you know, just kind of check her mind set of, you know, where is she with this? And I think she kind of understands, she knows his heart stopped. She knows that's really not good. Um, I don't know, you know, I'll probably always be a little bit mindful of, of her, you know, as she gets older and really that sinks in of what that meant, you know, and how close they came to losing their dad. They, you know, she may have to deal with some of that later, but as for right now, she's okay. I mean, they're also kids who've grown up knowing that their dad had cancer twice, you know, so I right. think for them. A little, little bit different than the average kiddo then. Dad's in the hospital again, you know, no, <laughs> so. <laughs> Yay. He just wants more attention. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so yeah, he's that poor guy has been through a lot. Um, and then, you know, it's kind of interesting to see that through him, I get to see vicariously the the physician side of things, um, the patient side of things. The, his second cancer diagnosis, I remember we came out of ultrasound um, where they had confirmed that it was a tumor and um, he was on call as a resident in that hospital. And he just like took 20 minutes to go get a quick scan, right? And oh, by the way, you have cancer now. And uh, then he had to get back to work and he got a page as we were sitting in the, you know, right outside the ultrasound room, just trying to process what had just happened. He got a page, there'd been a gunshot wound come in, a guy blew his face off and he had to go operate on his eyeball. So. Yeah. Medicine it's is just, weird. It's a weird. Yep. You guys are weird. It's I applaud you. Compartments, especially re especially <laughs> residency. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's all compartments. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I will tell you, there. 2020 has been a a year full of sh just shit. I mean, yeah. it sucked. Um, and there are two or three stories in my mind that I'm aware of that just bring some bring spark joy or whatever you want to yeah. call it. And certainly your all story and, and, and listening and, and particularly, you know, you know, Doc G's fun to watch, but you get to be the hero here and the heroes, the hero side of the story is really fascinating, you know, there, and, um, and it's just, it's just really awesome. Uh, it's really awesome what you did um, that you kept your head and uh, thankfully he didn't have to have any patients miss clinic or miss yeah, the clinic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I took Twitter off of his phone. I took all the banking apps Did off you? his phone. Smart. I took anything off that, you know, you could get into trouble with if you're on drugs or, you know, not <laughs> yeah. or whatever. That's probably and I smart. actually, so yeah. I was at home, right? Cause it was COVID and I was just getting like a phone call a day from the hospital or something. That was it. Um, wow. And so I knew that he was, I think we've talked about this on Twitter a bit, but I knew that he was okay. The moment I knew he was going to be okay is when I saw that he tweeted something because that meant that he was able to install Twitter back on his phone, remember his password <laughs> to log in and then actually made coherent sense. Nice. And, and it was something funny. Like his humor was still there. Everything was still there. Like his cognitive awesome. was still him, you know, that was the moment that, and I found out on Twitter, just like everybody else. <laughs> That's such a funny moment of relief. It's just, you yeah. turn on Twitter and there's your husband. And you're like, oh, he's right. going to be okay. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank Where you so much I? for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it. And sorry for the technical difficulties. Hopefully I oh, can edit okay. this together and, and make it look okay. So um, yeah. we'll let you get back to the kids and, and thank you. Um, yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for talking to us. It was a great year. Yeah, thanks like, for, for having me. Yeah. It's really we great. We appreciate you. We'll awesome. let you guys. Thank All right. you. All right.